I've, I've enjoyed playing here. This has been over 20 years that I've, I've been coming to Royal Melbourne. This way golf should be played. We love coming down under. Look, it's phenomenal to play. The quality of the golf's been great, but the enthusiasm of the people's been the thing that's just been amazing. Tier of courses that I'm willing to shave my neck for in Kingston Heath and Victoria. Get me out of bed to shave. Especially somewhere like Australia in the sand belt, and I have so many great memories of being down there. G'day and welcome back to Australian Golf Passport. I'm Scott Warren and I'm joined by my co-host Matthew Molica. G'day, Matty. G'day, Scott. How are you? Really well, mate. Really well. I've been looking forward all week to chatting about Barn Boogle with you. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to the next hour or so. Uh, Going to talk about Barn Boogle, the resort, uh, the two courses, Barn Boogle Dunes and Lost Farm. Uh, lots of really good chat about a really special place in Australian golf. Yeah, it, it holds a special little place in the hearts of most of us. Uh, we were saying just before we hit record that we assume that most golfers in Australia worth their salt have been down there at some point. Uh, for those who haven't, hopefully this is the little incentive that finally pushes you down there. And for those of you planning to come to Australia in times ahead, this is another of the must visits on your itinerary for sure. Now, before we jump into Barn Boogle, Matty, uh, some news of the week, and it's a bit of a Tasmanian-centric news of the week to go with uh, Barn Boogle being a Tasmanian golf resort. Uh, confirmed this week that Seven Mile Beach in Hobart uh, will be opening in or around December 2023. Uh, that was confirmed by the project developer Matt Goggin on the uh, fantastic State of the Game podcast. Recommend anyone who hasn't listened to that to, to grab State of the Game and have a listen to a great chat. Host Rod Morrie with Mike Clayton and Mike DeVries, who are co-designing the course, uh, Jeff Shackelford, and Matt Goggin, who, of course, is a Tasmanian touring professional uh, whose who's pet project has been to, to get this thing to happen over a long period of time. So really good chat just about golf course design, really interesting from Matt Goggin's point of view about designing a resort or a, or a public access facility for what he calls the retail golfer. And, you know, it's not just architectural wonks and people who travel great distances. It's people who live in Hobart who are going to have this new golf course to go and play. So really great conversation and really exciting to know that a year or so from now, Matty will be teeing it up at Seven Mile Beach. Yeah, they're getting grass to grow down there already. It's really exciting to see those photos. Uh, we had a mutual friend spend some time on site on the last day or two, and he's as excited as you would expect. Can't wait to get down there. Yeah, absolutely. And so just across the water from Seven Mile Beach, Matty, is a project called Arm End, uh, which has been, again, a quite a long-running uh, would-be project battling, you know, the things that new golf developments battle, you know, planning laws and environmental um, opposition and whatnot. We were able to confirm this week, and it's been rumoured for, for some months, that that project has parted ways with its architects, Crafter and Mogford. We have it on very good authority that they're going to be replaced, Maddie, by Ogilvy, Cocking and Mead. Yeah, which will be it'll be fascinating to see what they do on that site. I'm not sure it's as good a site as Seven Mile Beach, and I think there's been other issues related to permits and water surety to the site. See, I'm keen to see what happens there. That's been it's been a while in the making, but hopefully we end up with two great courses in that neck of the woods, and another reason for people to go down to Tassie with their clubs. Now, some cleanups too, Maddie, from from last week's episode uh, on Royal Melbourne. Uh, I mentioned in the news at the start of that episode, 
I referred to Kingston Heath and Commonwealth having been on similar footing about 15 years ago. Thanks to Mike Clayton, who called me out on that uh, and said, I think you mean more like 30 years ago. Of course, Mike, as he usually is, is absolutely correct. And I think it's probably just this um, ageing person, Matty, wishing that the early 90s were 15 years ago still and not 30. You know, Warney's debut feels like about 15 years ago, not 30. So that's the kind of era that we're talking about. But Mayor Culpa, something that we meant to mention before uh, we did the Royal Melbourne episode was that we're really mindful, and some listeners have brought this up in in feedback, that describing a hole or talking about a hole when someone hasn't seen it can be a pretty unenjoyable thing to listen to. I certainly feel that way with some podcasts. I hear some golf podcasts that, you know, go through on the thirds of dogleg left and you have to hit over a hill and it's bunkered on the run. It's not great. It's not great listening. Uh, We're mindful of that. We're also mindful that sometimes it's a bit unavoidable. And I think our middle ground, Maddie, that we're going to push with, which we did do for Royal Melbourne, we just didn't mention it in the recording was to have pictures up on Instagram and Twitter before each episode drops so that if we're talking about, you know, the fourth at Barnbugle Dunes, which I'm sure we're going to do at length in this episode, some pictures on social media so that, you know, as you're listening, you can have a look at it and hopefully that will add some enjoyment uh, to that discussion if you haven't been able to play the hole yet and you don't have a picture of it in your mind. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to try and flesh out some of the discussion. We're definitely not going to sit here and do a description of one through 18 and ask people to visualize 6,000 yards of golf that they've never played before. But hopefully the real highlights of a round will be able to talk about a little bit without going bananas. One other interesting thing that I wanted to tidy up from uh, the previous episode and probably from the previous three, we talk about the sand belt like we know precisely where it is and we assume most of our audience know precisely where it is. There'll be some in the UK, Europe, US who don't quite exactly know where that region is in relation to a major population centre. And I'll do a little bit to sort of flesh out where that collection of suburban Melbourne golf courses lie in relation to the CBD and some accommodation sites for people who are visiting on a golf trip. Uh, Basically, the Sandbelt is an area that lies about 20 to 25 kilometres southeast of the Melbourne CBD. It's a 25 to 30 minute drive from the centre of Melbourne town. It's a little bit shorter if you're staying somewhere like St Kilda. You can stay even closer than that in some nice suburbs down that neck of the woods, Brighton, Sandringham, Elwood, where you're close to the water. Uh, But yeah, we'll flesh that out a little bit, particularly as we do more episodes on some of the other courses in that region, like Yarra Yarra, Victoria, Kingston Heath, Metropolitan, Commonwealth and others. Terrific. So Matty, from the Sandbelt, over Bass Strait, onto Barnboogle. It's a place that I've got to say, I I love being at Barnboogle just as much, maybe more than I love playing golf at Barnboogle. There's just something really special about the, for want of a better word, the vibe of the place, the atmosphere and the relaxation that as you make that hour drive north from Launceston, you feel this gradual relaxation, the breathing gets deeper and easier. And it's just, particularly when you live in, in a big city like both of us do, to get out into the fresh air and the quiet and the nature, you know, it helps that there's two world top hundred golf courses there, but it really is, I think a real achievement of, of Richard Sattler and his family and all who've contributed to developing barn Boogle that the hang matches the golf. And it has this from the time you drive in the gate to drive out, there's just this one atmosphere of relaxation and enjoyment and nature that 
you know, that's common amongst all the things that you're doing. Yeah, it's incredibly understated. They've created an atmosphere that is extremely welcoming, extremely casual. Yeah, you just, as you said, you, you get closer to the coast and then you see a, a very understated entrance drive and feel like this weight just lifts as you enter. And it, it's one of those places where you're always sad to leave and you're thinking, how can I get back here? <laughs> it's easier to say too now that it is this incredible success, but it feels like the perfect amount of remoteness. You know, it's it's an hour drive from a major airport. It's not stupidly difficult to get to from from the major population centres in Australia, but it's far enough that you've gone somewhere, disconnected enough that you feel like you've you've unplugged from life. But um, but yeah, it's it's really really special to me in that there is that consistency of that atmosphere across everything on the property. I um. About 10 years ago, went on a trip in America where I went to Ballyneal. And the course at Ballyneal is pretty similar, you know, in, in kind of character to Barn Boogle Dunes, which both designed by Tom Doak. But then you go into your accommodation and it's this six-star lodge with, you know, a mattress that's about four feet thick and everything's high-end. And for me, that was quite jarring because you've just been in this complete natural setting and then there's this this kind of six-star room whereas the first time I stayed at Barnboogle I stayed in in the cottages at Barnboogle Dunes down by the Chipping Green and it was 55 bucks a night per person staying quad share and it was comfortable enough that you had a good sleep and a good shower after a day of golf but it it fit Um, and I think that's a real testament to you know Richard Sattler likes to sometimes depict himself as just a dumb spud farmer that got lucky, uh, but obviously a huge background in hospitality. And that shines through, I think, in in the product and the service that, that you get at Barn Boogle. It's not, yeah, precisely. not too shiny. It's not too rustic. It's just right. Everything you need and nothing you don't. The first time I stayed down there, I think the first two or three times I stayed down there, I stayed exactly the same spot, those cottages, and they felt like, demountable classrooms really but they they gave you everything that you needed you you went to bed after a nice dinner you woke up with the sun and got back out there and hit more balls the other thing that i think is just can't be stressed enough about barnburgle is the incredible value that it has always provided and despite its incredible success commercially and um, critically you haven't seen those costs go up and up and up and up and up i mentioned the first time i stayed in 2011 those those cottages quad share were $57 a night and I checked today and those same cottages in high season quad share will set each person back $66 a night that's 11 years and a lot of success ago uh, it's gone up nine bucks a night per person and I think that speaks to the incredible ongoing value golf's $170 all day in high season $139 around it's ridiculous when you look at what great golf costs around the world and that we're talking about one of the top 25 courses in the world and another one of the top 100 courses in the world. That could be three or four times yeah. that price and, and is in other places in the world. We're just so lucky you know, to have that, that stupid value available to us for something so great. What's that in pounds? 80 quid for the day? Golf yeah. and golf and accommodation quad share. So that's... Yeah, remarkable. And then so Boogle Run is obviously the third course at the facility. It's a 14-hole course, 12 par threes, two par fours, $80 a round to play that. And I think that's going to be an interesting one where 
do people use that as an arrival or departure day option if they don't have time for an 18-hole course? Uh, I I haven't been to Barn Boogle since before COVID, so I haven't had the opportunity to play Boogle Run, which opened mid last year. It'd be interesting to see whether I would say nine holes on one of the bigger courses was that preferred to Boogle Run. Uh, but I know everyone who's played it has said, you know, they're glad they played it once. They'd think about how it fits into their plans on future trips, but it's um, it's certainly been a really popular addition to the resort. I think just in terms of practicalities during peak season as well, if, if they're getting a lot of traffic on Saturdays and Sundays, after lunch, people might not have the option of getting out as easily to go and play that, that afternoon round or, or max out their $170 pass for the whole day. So having another option on site with, with the short course, probably a good option for punters, but also the venue itself. They can accommodate people a little better. So since the Lost Farm course opened in 2010, and it brought with it obviously its own accommodation and clubhouse and whatnot, uh, there is kind of a choice now. Now the upmarket, in inverted commas, at Lost Farm is still some frills rather than no frills, certainly not high end uh, or over the top, but it does bring with it uh, quite a nice restaurant with a view over over the ocean. There's a day spa at, uh, at Lost Farm, which I think appeals somewhat to couples or groups who might have some non-golfers who want to come and enjoy the place but do need something to do during the, the day that's not play golf. Uh, Lost Farm with the sports bar as well is a really great after-golf option, particularly as my trips have tended to be. Uh, I take I take advantage of a more credible winter offer that they, that they do each year. Uh, and if you're there during footy season, a day of golf and then pizza and beers, watching whichever football code you prefer – that's a pretty uh, it's a pretty great setup they've got. Yeah, it's 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 hard to beat. Options for everyone, whether or not they want to go and play till their hands bleed. Um, non-golfing partners, uh, they've they've got everything covered there. Now onto onto the golf, which is the star, Maddie. As much as we enjoy the apres golf and whatnot, so the Dunes course was the first to come at Barnbugle. Uh, we covered some of its its backstory in our episode two, uh, looking at at the development of modern golf in Australia. 2004, it opened. Uh, October 2004, when its first day of play came along, a bloke by the name of Matthew Mollica was there. Uh, So can you tell us what you recall about what must have been a pretty exciting but a bit unprecedented day, I guess, in Australian golf, being, being the first really great modern course to open in Australia? I went down with a friend, Steve who we mentioned in the previous episode, uh, flew to Launceston, rented the car and drove up uh, through Georgetown and, and past the Beaconsfield mine, uh, through the Tamar Valley. And we were just so excited. We expected, we expected a really remarkable course. And I think we, we went in with high expectations and had them exceeded. There was no clubhouse site. There was a, a tiny little shack on the site where that clubhouse now sits. Uh, there might have been eight other people there that day. I remember it was the day of the 2004 federal election. It was a beautiful, sunny Saturday, probably a three-club wind at its most. Yeah, just a, just a brilliant day, and we were, we were scheming as to how we could get back. I think, we played, I think we played about 30 holes that day. We went back out and played the front nine again and just blown away by some of the, some of the highlights through the round. There was a rawness to the course as well. Like It wasn't... It wasn't as if it wasn't ready to be played, but it was just 
had this really appealing character to it that it still retains in some ways. It was just different to everything else that we had played in Australia up until that point too. I think that's one of the things that you mentioned is a, is a lasting thing about Barn Boogle Dunes is even now people who've been there three or four times, more times than that even, will get back from a trip and you'll see them at the golf club, you'll say, how was it? And they just kind of get this big beaming grin. They're like, oh, the shots you get to hit, they're just, you don't get to hit them anywhere else. You know, and they'll describe a ball that landed 50 yards right of a green and took a slope and ran down. And it's that, it's definitely that difference that I think makes it worth the journey. Uh, It really is its own type of golf in Australia. And I do balk a little bit at some people who then, having told you that story with this massive grin on their face, will say, oh, but I wouldn't want to play it every Saturday, you know. It's too, it's a bit wild to play every Saturday. I just think, well, you've just described the most fun you've had in five years. Why wouldn't you want to have that fun every Saturday? Yeah, I, I don't understand the the critical comments that people will make. They'll either talk about the absence of a competition. Uh, they'll talk about greens that aren't stimping at 12. Uh, they'll talk about Irish drops from the Marum. And I just I just don't get it. I think just just park the Stableford scorecard for a day, guys. Go down there and have some fun and you're going to hit some of the best shots and play some of the best holes you'll ever play. Yeah, I think that's um, that's key is to play the right match or type of golf when you go around, particularly Barnbiggle Dunes. Lost Farm, I think, maybe is a bit more scorecard friendly, but go around Barnbiggle Dunes, whether it's a match against against your mate or, you know, I've got a friend that when we go down, we we have our competition is who can have the most three-pointers, so net birdies on the day. So you could have plenty of wipes. doesn't really matter if your ball's in your pocket four or five times if you're trying to hit the shots that are going to yield you those birdies or net birdies. I think those are the the formats that allow you to have fun and take on the, the shots that might be low percentage but are high fun. Yeah, that's a great idea. I often hear people talking about mixing up the tees from which they play, particularly if the winds are strong on the day of their visit. But, you, yeah, if you, you have a little practicality and a little imagination. Yeah, I think the, of- tea, the tees are really important too because there's people get pig-headed about, I'll only play from 6,000 metres or longer or they'll have a number in their head. But the the numbers people have in their head about the yardage that they play is often formed off a home club or course that's a lot more traditional in nature that maybe allows you to go sideways a bit more by accident, find your ball and hit it again. I think with with Barney particularly, a huge amount of the fun shots, you know, driving over that massive bunker on the fourth and trying to get the kick down onto the green off the tee, if you're playing from too far back, that option's taken away from you. You want to be on a tee where... You should make it, but you need to hit a good shot. You know, you don't want to don't want to be knocking a four iron over that bunker. But by the same token, you punish yourself by playing too far back. I think you miss out on some of the shots that make that the twenty something best golf course in the world. Absolutely, and the wind can really blow there. It seems to be November is a consistently tough time for wind uh, at, at Barnbugle. We're going to talk about the seventh hole in a, a couple of minutes. Um, that's really my barometer for determining how strong the wind does on any particular person's day. I'll ask them what they hit into that green, and that'll give me a, a, a guide as to what sort of elements they battled. Some days you'll get an easterly wind, which is not super common down there, and that sort of makes the course 
look or feel distinctly different, play distinctly different. But generally, it's degrees of strength of northerlies and northwesterly winds and pure westerly winds. And, and the course can, has obviously been set up around that that prevailing wind from that side. You know, so you've got generally your drivable par fours and the the seventh, which is all of 105, 110 metres from the backs, they play into the prevailing wind. So, yeah, certainly when you catch that reverse wind, some of those holes can play incredibly short, you know, with, with say, 20 knots of wind behind you instead of 15 or 20 into you. Yeah. The other holes then provide a bit more of a stern challenge than they have on past visits. You start thinking about where you're going to land some shots and it's just in stark contrast to the memory of having played in previous times, but that's that's Lynx golf. That's fun. Yeah, and that's the mastery, I guess, of the design from Tom Doak and Mike Clayton is that you can play it so many different ways, even that, that fourth hole, which for a lot of people is going to be just a drive on or near the green. When you can't make it past that, that gigantic drive bunker, it's, well, do I drive it to the right and try and sneak in the gap between the dunes or do I hit it over to the left and have a blind second shot but with a massive backstop that I can feed it off? It actually, even when you have the headline shot taken away from you, the shots that you get to choose are still incredibly fun. It's it's Fun's a word we've We've mentioned a few times already, and we're going to probably mention it a few more times before the episode's out. It's the course just provides it in spades. Absolutely, and that's why we, I mean it's why we play golf. I think, and people lose sight of that with with focusing on difficulty or all these other things that sort of make that make things a bit miserable. Sometimes we play the game to have fun, and certainly if you're travelling an hour and a half on a plane and another hour in a car, you want to go and have fun. You know, with your playing partners, and I, I just can't see how, how too much fun is too much. But um, interestingly, Maddie, some people wouldn't use the word fun to describe the seventh, which we've touched on on briefly. You know, it's it's a hundred meters long with a quite a small crowned green. I guess it's not a typical fair golf hole that some of them might like to see. A person I've been to Barnbugle with a couple of times. We'll always bring up in the car on the way back to the airport when we're finished that he hates that hole and it's the worst par three in the whole place. And I just think I just think that's an incomprehensible point of view. But it does show that we're all we're all different. We enjoy different things. But that hole, a hundred meters, that could be, you know, a punch sandwich or it could be a full blooded five iron, depending on the wind. It it makes you feel things. Yeah, it's it's a remarkable hole. I could I would I'd struggle to stay in the car with that guy on the way back to the airport. I think it's a great kind of hole that I love to see on a lot of courses. Uh, it's it's playable for anyone. It's asking for precision and not power. Uh, it's asking you to control your nerve a little. It's 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 a great example of a tiny little par three. And there's there's the postage stamp at Troon that we all love. Uh, there's there's a really steeply downhill seventh at Pebble Beach that asks similar sorts of questions. If anything, Tom's little devil at Barnboogle Dunes is probably a tiny bit more daunting than that. That left greenside bunker is a yawning hazard and don't have to be Einstein on the tee to think, I can't miss it there, otherwise I'm in big trouble. You also don't feel like you should be missing the green on a still day when you've got such a short club in hand. I think that's another part of the attraction of that hole. No, a 100-metre par three should be a birdie chance, but quite often 
if you don't hit the green, it's how do I make sure that I make a four and not a five, which in its own way is is a really fun challenge to have. Uh, and it's one of those things where if you do miss anywhere but in that bunker, it's your classic tough shot off, a, off an easy lie. When you've got a little bit of short grass under your ball, you feel like you should be able to hit it close. But again, that crown on the green does make it even a little pitch and run. You know, is is a completely different proposition. Yeah, great little twist in the routing there. Lots of people, lots of designers would have probably bypassed that little stretch of land, but it's a it's a great little interlude in the in that stretch of golf holes five, six, seven, eight. You wanted to talk about the eighth hole as well, which is a, a long four. Yes, it's a long four, or it's a short five, or it's a easy seven. Sometimes. <laughs> I, I still don't think that I know how to feel about that hole and my feelings tend towards the negative, but I, again, come back to what I just said about seven, but in a different vein. Yeah, I love golf holes that make you feel something. You rarely walk off the eighth at Barnboogle Dunes and think, well, that was uneventful and everything that happened was what I expected to happen. Yeah, I've never, I've never felt that on that hole. <laughs> I don't think I ever will. Something always uh, happens, you know. You, yeah. you either get this horrible outcome or a bounce you think shouldn't have, shouldn't have bounced the way it did, or maybe you finally hit a crisp long iron after years of trying, and you make the green in regulation, and you feel like you're actually maybe an okay golfer. Like it's, it's like a lot of holes that, on that golf course, even the ones that that aren't the standouts, you know, they go back to that that Tom Simpson quote of, you know, a good hole should be look harder than it is or be harder than it looks. And a lot of the holes at Barnboogle do that. Eight, I don't, I don't know that I have a coherent argument why it sucks. And maybe the fact that it, I think about it so often, even though I haven't been to the resort in nearly five years, is testament that it's, it's, it's not what I'm calling it. But, yeah, I think... Again, you're going, even from Sydney or Melbourne, a long way to be at Barnboogle and you're going to play some stuff that is incredibly different. Um, and, you know, there's not a lot of unique golf holes, but I think eight at Barnboogle Dunes might be a unique golf hole. Yeah, it definitely is. Two-tiered landing zone, long par four, often a strong tailwind at your back, a bit of a daunting approach that green's perched up quite high and if you haven't laced your tee shot, you've got more club in hand than you feel comfortable with. I think I like too it. what what um what eats into you is that the native at Barnboogle Dunes is not a place where you find your golf ball. No, it's it's not. And it's that's one thing that's important to point out to visitors who've not been there previously. We mentioned in passing that Irish drop suggestion where you basically just for the one stroke penalty just drop a ball at the point where you entered and you're treating the marum like a like a lateral hazard, it, it is very thick. You get, you're probably going to lose your shoe or find a snake rather than find your golf ball. <laughs> Although having uh, having gone on trips to Barnboogle with with golfers who maybe aren't as wedded to the rules as as your club member who plays every week, few of my mates like to think that that Irish drop rule is not point of entry, but as far up as you reckon it might have gone. <laughs> you got people carrying estimated handicaps. You know, dropping the ball 300 up for one-shot penalty. So I don't love the Irish drop rule, but it is necessary there, um, I think, or you'd be you'd be looking at some pretty lengthy rounds. 
Yeah. I mean, there's there's plenty of fairway width in part, but sometimes you're going to hit something a bit crooked and be happy for that rule for sure. Just provided provided you haven't got Patrick Reed in your foursome. <laughs> now the front the front nine at Barnbugle Dunes is certainly it's the superstar nine. I think it 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 holds its home to most of the holes that people are going to really rave about. But I love on the back nine, you get some really unique moments. That 13th hole with what's essentially known, you know, by by the golf nuffies as the Sitwell Park Green, uh, but it's essentially, you know, a mogul course of a ski run with a with a flag and a hole on it. You know, you've got that remarkable finish 17 and 18 that, is just beautiful and very difficult, particularly when you catch one of those when you catch one of those really strong prevailing winds and you're playing driver long club twice in a row. It's just a lot of holes that, you know, and we'll save the listener a blow by blow description of of a lot of golf holes, but stuff that you haven't seen, shots that you really want to pull off, but maybe they're a little bit too much for you. It's this great juggle by the architects between giving you adventurous shots you know you can pull off and that you're going to make birdie here with just hard enough that maybe you don't have that shot. Or, you know, we talked about the marum being thick. I know I can pull this off, but if I don't pull it off, then I'm stuffed. It's a real interplay game between the architect and the player. It's almost as if Tom and Mike are walking with you and, and challenging you as you move around to try and do something that, you know, you'd really like to be able to hit that shot, but maybe you can't. That's really well said. Uh, I remember after my first two visits that I thought the front nine sort of held most of the highlight moments, but the more I've looked back in past years, I I view it as you do. There's that really curvy green on 10, great short for 12th that's reachable in the right conditions, wild green on 13, another shortish four at 15, Awesome finish. The coast's right there on your right side as you come through those final two holes. If someone was going to go play 27 and you said, oh, you can go play the front nine again or the back nine again, I, I always used to vote for the front nine. And now I, I find myself going back out 10 through 18, which is probably a testament to the course's quality and that you're tossing up which which nine's better. And there's there's a really great sprinkling of holes and, and moments on each side. It's a shame, Matty, that a place like Barnburgle is going to be somewhere that a lot of golfers go one time. I've not been there 20 times. I've not played the courses a crazy amount, but I've probably been to Barnburgle five separate trips. I reckon I've probably played the two courses 10 to 15 times each. And like you just articulated, my preferences have really changed over time. My preferences between the two courses, uh, the holes on each of the courses that I really enjoy or look forward to, uh, and always there's there's a hole that I don't really rate that I'll play and I'll notice something about it I've never noticed before. It's a great shame that both golf courses have so much detail and nuance and cleverness built into them that if you go and play them once or twice on a trip, you're going to get a huge amount of why it's brilliant. And I'm, I'm not downplaying the experience that you get to have, but it just is a shame that when there's so much to learn about the two courses, it's not a place that a lot of people will play enough to get to have that that discovery. Yeah, that's a sense I get during golf trips in general. I often hole out or walk to a next tee and look back at a green previously and think, oh, 
I don't know if I'm ever going to walk this path again. I don't know if I'm ever going to get to hit that shot again. And for courses that possess some nuance, some really clever design, you you do wish that people had multiple opportunities to play them. And Um, it's one of those things about, about golf as well that, you know, it's not a picture or a painting that you can just observe and learn passively. You know, you have to be on the ground with your clubs in the moment to really interact with the hole and learn it. You know, you can study it and you can look at a lot of pictures. And I think you can learn a good amount by doing that. But it's in the heat of battle that you identify, I think, some of the real cleverness that these great architects build into places like Barnbuckle Dunes. You're right. right. Now, Matty, six years after after Barnbuckle Dunes opened and was, was an incredible success, uh, Lost Farm followed. It's a Bill Core golf course. Uh, obviously, usually that that name would be accompanied by Crenshaw, uh, but Ben Crenshaw wasn't involved in in the design and construction of Lost Farm. So it's Bill Core, as always. You know, a host of really talented associates of of Bill Core's. It's not a facsimile of Barnbuckle Dunes. You know, they didn't take. Oh, we've got this great golf course everyone loves let's build another one they built you know a wider golf course that plays more in a variety of directions rather than you know the figure eight routing at barnbuckle dunes you're typically playing at 180 degrees to yourself lost farm traverses some of the lesser well what would be called lesser land uh were it not home to some incredible golf holes i think you overlook that flat land it fools you into thinking there's not much happening. Uh, but for me, some of the really interesting holes that that bear study at, at Lost Farm are holes like the first and the second, uh, the 11th and the 12th that play on on what is essentially the farmland. Uh, so we mentioned that the Barnbuggle property is a farm and has long-term been a farm. And the reason that we have this incredible golf is that there was this strip of lynx land this sandy lynx land on the coast that was no good for farming so the lost farm course kind of ticks and tacks in and out of the dunes land and the farmland it's really different to tom doak and and mike clayton's course over the river and i think that's a really neat thing to have when you go down on your trip there you're playing two courses that are more cousins than siblings Core and Doak, obviously similar but different designers. Uh, one prefers greens that are more benched up in dunes. One prefers greens that sit on f- kind of flatter ground near an interesting dune. So again, it's just things that you recognise, but they're different. And there's always a fantastic debate over drinks after the round on, you know, once you've played both of them, who prefers what and why. Those are really great discussions and I was just taken the first time I went there by just how different the two courses were uh, and how much fun that was to sort of learn something completely different. There are real contrasts between the two. And despite the fact they're grass the same and they occupy the same larger patch of land, uh, they're not they're not 10 years apart in age. So it is remarkable that we've got something that's distinctly different and something that's complementary in Lost Farm, definitely more manageable in the really stronger winds. I remember hearing 
and you'll remember this too, Scott, at the time prior to Barnboogle Dunes opening, people were doubting its viability because it was so far away. And, oh, I don't know if you're going to get enough people down into that neck of the woods to make this work. And then prior to Lost Farm opening, people were saying, oh, I've peered across the river and, oh, that land on the other side is too wild and the dunes are too big and I don't know how they're going to put 18 holes on that course. And both those views, I think time has shown them to be a little incorrect because there's some wonderful holes on flat land at Lost Farm. Uh, there, are some, there are some towering dunes, that huge dune on the fifth hole that we, we referenced when we were talking about caddies at the outset of the previous episode, some, some other really large-scale land movement on the back nine that we see as well. Some people definitely prefer Lost Farm for all of the consistently high ranking that is afforded Barnboogle Dunes, both in domestic ranking charts, but also the international magazines. We can name dozens of people that view Lost Farm as the superior layout, can't we? Well, I mean, I'll name myself. I, I've had this, this tug of war since I first went, and I always thought initially that Barnboogle Dunes was the better course, I think, because it's, it's got more hits, but... To use that music analogy, Lost Farm's the better album. Dunes has some better songs on it. The variety from hole to hole and that journey, I really enjoy a course where when you go from 1T to 18 green, you know, you go on a really interesting hike and you might come and go from some different types of environments and the walk in itself is an adventure. And I think that's really the case at Lost Farm, the way it takes you down the coast and up the river and then you come back through some really steep dune valleys down, you know, say nine and 10, you emerge up over the top of, you know, of that last ridge into the farm on 11 and 12, you sweep around again down the coast. I just think you you come and go from different environments. And to me, that holds your interest a little bit more than just playing in, in and around big dunes all day. I think that's one of the things that when people argue between Irish golf and Scottish golf, a lot of the things they talk about are the arguments that I hear and think about with Barnbiggle Dunes versus Lost Farm. Irish golf has all of the towering dunes and the big stuff that really wows you, but a lot of the Scottish courses have the little subtleties that are a bit more charming and take a little bit more learning. But it's great that this one resort can give you these these points to argue yeah if you if you had two courses that were far more similar you wouldn't be engaging in those discussions you wouldn't have differing experiences from day to day great choice to to get each of those architects to design 18 holes or 20 in the case of lost farm as we'll mention in a second uh on those on those sites so that they really are complementary where do you stand on the 20 hole thing um so for, so for li- listeners who haven't been there are there are 20 holes on that plot at lost farm there was a little par three that Mike Kaiser was enamored with and didn't want dropped from the rotation. So they just included it as 13A. And then basically walking from the 18th green back to the clubhouse, you play this tiny little pitch hole. That's just a way to pass the time. And 13A, though, I really, really do like. I'd, I'd have been torn, I think, if I was in a position to decide between, say, 13A and 17. So the story I'd, goes that, the reason 13A exists is that Mike Kaiser, who obviously is the developer of, of Band and Dunes, who was counsel to, to Richard Sattler and even doing Barn Boogle in the first place, he hates uphill par threes, is what I've read a couple of places from people who, who should know accurately. He doesn't think that they're a good hole for, quote-unquote, the retail golfer. 
you know, not the architecture wonk. And it was sort of this this tug of war between Bill Core and Mike Kaiser around whether 17 was was the right hole, particularly for the penultimate hole on the course. I think this is one of those situations where compromise is a bad thing because comp- compromise saw them both get built. Uh, I'm a bit like you. I prefer 13A to 17, but I just think that the 20 holes is a bit of a a compromise and a gimmick. Uh, I think you could have comfortably walked from 16 green up to the 18th tee and played, and it wouldn't have felt like a indulgent kind of thing to do, a walk that was put a gap in the round where you didn't want a gap. I just, I think if, if Ross Watson had designed that golf course with 20 holes, people would have pilloried him. And so I don't know that Bill Core and Mike Kaiser necessarily deserve a full pass for having done the same thing. Yeah, I can respect that view. I know, I like, I just like back yourself, make a call, build an 18 hole golf course. Uh, as you said, that 18A is a, 18A is a, a bet settler kind of at best. Yeah, uh, it's really not a golf hole. But so, um, for me, you know, we talked about about four and seven at Barnbugle Dunes being the iconic postcard holes that you're going to go there just to play. You're going to think about them on the plane. You're going to chat about them with your with your mates in the car on the way up from Launceston. For me, on Lost Farm, it's uh, it's two holes. It's the fifth, which we which we have touched on previously, which is a long par four uh, over some wild land, over a huge dune that really tests you and and in the wrong wind, you know, can probably make some people start claiming it's unfair, unplayable. Then on the other side of the spectrum is the 14th, which is not just a drivable par four, it's, you know, on a straight line, only about 220 metres to the front of the green. It's eminently drivable. Uh, it's... To me, maybe the best drivable par four I've seen just because what it sets up in terms of the challenge is so simple. Downwind, you could probably be hitting a long iron if you're a good player. There's this ocean of short grass off to the left. You know, it feels insulting to think that maybe you should just hit a safe shot out there and wedge it on. But the green's just just waiting so close to you. Obviously, a beautiful view behind the green out out to sea, which never hurts. That's the kind of hole that two weeks out from, if I'm going to Barney, two weeks out, I'll start thinking about 14. I view three in a similar way. Short par four on the on the front side. 14, definitely. You just want to hit a solid drive, just thread it down the right side to the front of that green. Give yourself an eagle chance. 16 uh, is, is one of the other holes that I really, really like on flat ground. I think it's a great design sort of old school, squared off, subtle green, really wide fairway. One side affords you a great look at approach. You drive to the other side of the fairway and you're on short grass and you think you're pretty safe, but you really don't have much to look at on approach. One of the things I love about 16, Maddie, and we we touched on earlier that Barnbugle Dunes has the really wild greens. Lost farms are more sedate, but the slopes are still there to either hurt you or help you. 16, you mentioned, if you drive it to the right, you feel like, oh, no, I'm okay here. There's just enough slope running off the dune that that hole hugs, just enough slope running off that at the green that your shot's going to land and kick hard forward. You know, it's it's subtle enough that you feel like, you know, you can be good enough to control it with spin and you'll be okay. And it's a great example of a hole where you're dead about 15 minutes before you realise it. 
Yeah, you 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 you're convinced you're still alive long after you've lost any hope of paring the hole. And I really love that that slow death uh, that it, that it gives you. And you're right, you you bash it down the right hand side all day uh, and and feel like you're doing okay. But particularly late in the round, uh, particularly when you've played that hole a couple of times and you know what's up, to get up on that tee and have the ability and the you know not just to see where the right shot is, but to be able to hit that shot over the bunker, I think is uh, it's incredibly fun. And it's one of those things that does reward you with multiple plays of the hole is you learn, you know, you learn that there's there's that death right and there's still that tear within yourself because you, you look right and you see fairway and part of you just says, no, 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 it'll be like, it's okay. Like I don't need to take on that bunker. I don't want to be in that bunker. So it'll be okay. I'll manage it. It's a great hole. Really, really cool hole late in the round. I'll put up, as I said before, I'll put up pictures of, of those holes that will flesh out some of the discussion so people can look at them. And and um, I really think that's going to be beneficial when people are listening to this section of the pod. I think we should try to get up pictures of 16, you know, the approach view from the left versus the approach view from the right because it really is, you know, architecture can get a bad rep for, you know, people stroking their beards and trying to use multi, multi-syllable words, but... That's what I think makes a golf course captivating and makes it you want to go back again and again and again and again. And it's that whole, you know, it's on flat land. You could build it anywhere, but it's just these little tricks and games that Bill Corr's built into it. It's like solving a puzzle and the puzzle resets every time the wind moves or every time the grass firms up or softens or every time you gain form or lose form, it's a different puzzle and you have to solve it over and over and over. I think that's... That's why we travel to play golf. That hole is a really great example of what we travel to try and find. For sure. Now, in terms of in terms of travelling to play golf, we were talking before about flying down to Launceston and then driving up in a rental car from about an hour from Launceston to, to Bridport. Depends how excited you are. Could be 40 minutes. <laughs> Shouldn't be. It could be. Definitely should not be 40 minutes. Um, there's some people who fly direct. And that's definitely with escalating airfare costs in Australia. And if you've got a multi-day stay down there, and if you're traveling in a reasonably sized group, traveling in a small plane from one of the smaller airports in Melbourne, either Essendon Airport or Moorabbin Airport, where light aircraft take off and land. Moorabbin's not far from Woodlands, Kingston Heath, various other sandbelt golf courses. Taking a, a, a small plane or a light plane from one of those locations, as opposed to a large carrier from Tullamarine Airport, the, the, the domestic airport in Melbourne, that's definitely an option, uh, and and not as prohibitive in terms of cost as you would expect. You you save on rental car because you really land, you land close to the golf course itself. Someone comes out to greet you in a golf cart, and you have no need to park your rental car for a couple of days. Vortex. Sharp flight to Barney as well. From memory, I'll put the I'll put a couple of links in the show notes to to airlines who will, who will take those flights down there. My position on those those charter flights, Maddie, has changed. I think quite a lot, and it, it's what you just touched on over the years, because they're not they're certainly not the most affordable option to get from Melbourne to Barnbogle. But you know, as we get older, and you know, I've got a young family now. The thing that is in most short supply when I go on a golf trip is time. The Launceston flight 
might cost you a round of golf compared to a vortex or sharp plane straight into barn bugle. And so, yeah, you're right. It is, it is an added cost and, and it's going to be, you know, everyone's going to make their own appraisal of value. But I think when you're in that part of your life where time is the thing that you don't have much of, to be able to land straight into barn bugle, be on the tee 15 minutes after your, your plane wheels hit the ground is certainly a really great thing, particularly when, you know, you're spending 66 bucks for your, for your bed for the night and 170 for a full day's golf on a world top 100 course. I think if you can justify that, that little treat of the, of the charter flight in, it's something that would be a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool thing to do. Yeah, if you if you if there's seven others traveling with you, three others traveling with you, there's you're on the tee fast. It's, it makes sense. Now, if you do fly into Launceston, you grab a rental car. One advantage that you have versus versus landing at Barnburgle without a car is that Northern Tasmania is a pretty cool place, even away from Barnburgle. Cradle Mountain is is a really revered uh, nature spot. Um, some great hiking and some great ecotourism lodges and whatnot. That's about a three-hour drive west of Barnbugle. There's also increasingly popular and, and successful distilleries and uh, particularly Pinot Noir vineyards in northern Tasmania. So, again, something that if you're an 18-holes-a-day kind of person and, and you don't want to be playing golf from sun up to sundown, the ability to go for a drive before or after your round, you know, taste some some whiskey or some wine and take in some of that. As we said at the start of the episode, it's just remote enough, but you're certainly not in a place where all you can do is is enjoy Barnburgle and Bridport. No, definitely not. There's this Cataract Gorge in Launceston that's a wonderful, wonderful walk. The wineries, as you said, there's some beautiful restaurants in town as well in Launceston. There's Roman baths that I remember visiting uh, when my wife took one of the trips down to Launceston with me many years ago. There's plenty to do. for So for those who have an extra day up their sleeves and they do land in Launceston and they've got a car, you can fill an itinerary, no question. Now, Matty, you mentioned earlier on in the, in the episode that November is noted for its high winds. Now, People might recall that we've we've been spruiking March, April, and October, November as the times of year to come down if you're coming from overseas. For those of us who are in Australia uh, and kind of have a bit more choice on when they're going to be at Barnburgle, one of the things that was a great surprise to me, they do a winter deal. Now, the cost has gone up a little bit over the years. The last time I did it was probably five years ago. And I think from memory, it was it was about four seventy five for three days golf, two nights accommodation, two brekkies. I think post COVID, that's that's closer to maybe five seventy five, but still ridiculously good value. Now, the first time that me and my mates did that, it was because we were broke and it was cheap, and it was either go to Barney then or not be able to go. We got to Barnburgle in the start of August, and we had all the layers and all the wet weather stuff, and we thought. These conditions are going to be really unpleasant, but we're going to get to go. And day two it was 19 degrees and we didn't wear jumpers. It's quiet down there that time of year. You're not facing tea time pressures. In fact, one morning that we were there on a winter trip, it poured with rain. And so we just sat in the Lost Farm restaurant drinking coffee and telling stories. And when it stopped raining, we went to the first tea because there was, there was bugger all people on the property. So I really, really rate winter as a great time of year down in Barnburgle, the wind is lighter versus spring and summer. 
after you finish your game of golf. Granted, you have a bit less daylight, but you wander into the sports bar and you've got the rugby league or the Aussie rules on the TV. I can't recommend winter at Barnbeagle enough. Clates talks about the weather being really good down there in September. Been down there twice at that time. It's, it's been remarkable. Lighter winds, more tolerable temperatures than you'd expect. For the Aussies listening who are thinking of getting back down there, I agree. Perfect time. Yeah, we talked about the fact that the that the cooch grass in Melbourne and Sydney in winter, once it goes into dormancy, can be a little bit of a a little bit of an unpleasant experience. But obviously, Barn Burgle, all fescue, fairways and greens. You know that that grass loves the winter um, and the and the cold climate. So you're going to get really great playing surfaces year round, and particularly you know in the winter when there's no heat stress or humidity stress. Yeah, the surfaces probably one of the things we haven't spoken about enough. Those fescue fairways are just a joy to play from. Uh, great club turf interaction, great predictable bounce, and you can hit stacks of low running shots into greens should you wish or should the conditions dictate. And it's it's perfect for that site and that climate too. Yeah, um, and fescue too, big aggressive divots that that just look <laughs> majestic in the air. Makes you feel like a tour play when you take one of those big, it's like the size of a T-bone steak just flying through the air, staying in one piece. I know that's that's extremely sideline to to golf travel, but I do love I do love a gigantic fescue divot. Now, one question before we wind up, one question without notice. I have a friend who tells me that there's no need for me to ever go to Bandon Dunes because I have a scale model of it at such an insanely good price, literally on my doorstep. He talks about the comparable character and quality of courses at Barn Boogle and Bandon. You've played more through the UK than me, Scott. What If you were to draw some comparisons between Lost Farm and Barn Boogle and some courses that you'd played in the UK over the years, which courses would you gravitate to? So I would say straight off the top of my head, Royal St George's and Royal St Ports okay. are a little bit the same, that they're very they're very near to each other. One has big dunes, blind shots, wild greens. One is a bit more lots of three to four foot undulations that that look less impressive to the eye, but those little undulations are often where the most interesting golf is versus the big stuff. Uh, I think that possibly Royal Dornick and Brewer is, again, two courses you know, nestled pretty close to each other that bring out different different things that are special about Lynx golf. I would say that I would say that Lost Farm is more of a British golf course if I had to make a distinction out of Lost Farm and Barnbugle Dunes. Uh, but certainly Matty, I I asked the same question of someone who knows Bandon very well after they came to Barnbugle and their view was if all the courses at Bandon and all the courses, the both courses at Barnburgle were in the one resort, Barnburgle might have the two best courses. And when you factor in that you're paying 170 Australian dollars all day versus 500 in high season, and the fact that, mate, Bandon Dunes is booked out to the end of 2023 already. You know, we are prone maybe in Australia to trumping up what we have and maybe making ourselves think that it's a bit better than it really is. But I think when it comes to Barn Boogle versus comparable options around the world, we are so lucky to have it. And again, I'll stop short of the money back guarantee like I did with Royal Melbourne, but I defy you to go to Barn Boogle with some people who are special 
and spend a few days disconnected from the world playing golf and not be planning your next trip when you drive back to the airport. That's a perfect summation. That might be a good place to leave it. Beauty, mate. I enjoy this. Likewise. I'm uh, licking my chops at the thought of getting back down there. I might yeah. get online and have a look now, actually. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, just just like everyone's going to be planning the next trip when they're driving back to the airport, I might jump off now, Maddie, and, and look at my next one. <laughs>